I, uh, I remember on uh, the announcement on February 4th that um, Fred was referring to, and it was hilarious because the opposition immediately said, um, oh, fantastic, let's have a demonstration to celebrate the uprisings. And the government said, no, 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 you can't possibly have a demonstration. Mm -hmm. uh, so some demonstrations are, are more equal than others. Now, um, I'm going to bore you, and I'm going to bore you for two reasons. <laughs> First of all, because I'm going to talk about the European Union. Um, <laughs> Uh, and democratization, and you've, you've, you've probably heard um, uh, a bit too much about uh, democracy promotion. Uh, and secondly, because I'm going to talk uh, through the medium of, uh, uh, of Semiosis's poor cousin, we've had loads of brilliant pictures and, and a few videos, um, I'm going to use text. So it's about <laughs> as boring <laughs> a delivery as it can get. Nonetheless, I hope that... Um, that you'll get something out of it because um, I think although what I'm going to try to say is, is um, uh, it's a cog in a wheel of a much broader argument and it's quite a, a sort of technical detail-oriented approach uh, but uh, to me what's interesting about it is that there are certain patterns there are certain uh, interesting strategies in the texts that I look at um, that, uh, that, uh, that have much broader implications. Now. I don't know whether any of you um, uh, read uh, a very little known and certainly uh, not cited at all except one paper which did a tremendous disservice, um, an essay by Yakya Sadowski published in 1993 called Orientalism, something like the lines of Orientalism and the New Democracy Debate. Um, and basically his claim was that, look, you have these two generations of democratization discourse or, or um, uh, political development uh, analysis that said um, in the 1970s until about 1979, they said you can't possibly have democratization in the Middle East. Why? Because you have the Oriental state. It completely suffocates civil society. There's an imbalance. So in that kind of classical liberal model, you can't get democratization. And after 1979, you suddenly get a slew of uh, papers that are published saying, uh, oh, no, 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 no. Islamic civil society, it's so turbulent, it's so, uh, the, uh, it's so virulent that the state can't possibly control it. So you have an imbalance and you can't have democratization. Right? So you have exactly the same conclusion with exactly opposite lines of argument. And Sadovsky's point was quite simple. He says, look, you know, uh, there's something wrong with this picture. Of course, what happened in 1979 was the, was the revolution uh, in Iran. And so he was saying, look, aside from the Orientalist connotations of the argument, there's a kind of complex, interesting relationship between uh, the way knowledge is produced and, uh, and kind of so-called uh, practical, real uh, uh, politics. And that's what really got me started along the lines of this is really the broader <coughs> project that I'm interested in, knowledge production and its relationship, of course not deterministic nor linear, um, with, uh, with political <coughs> practices. Um, so, what I'm interested in looking at is the politics of democracy assistance or democracy promotion discourse. Right? Now, what struck me when I started looking at this was that there's a, there's a rare consensus. If you look at the democratization studies uh, literature as a subfield, mostly it's very pol-sci, very kind of mainstream positivist analysis, um, and it agrees that what the European Union does is liberal. Right? On the presumably more or less lefty, posty, post-colonial, post-structuralist, a friend of mine calls it post-office, because it's a bit post <laughs> <laughs> um, But uh, I can't believe I said that on camera, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, so on that side of the argument, you get pretty much agreement. So yeah, this is neo liberal, neoliberal, 
Um, and the implication, interestingly, is that uh, on both sides of this kind of uh, consensus, is that this is a bad thing. Right? Uh, the, the mainstream will say it's bad for several reasons. The, the, the critical uh, alternatives will say it's bad for a different set of reasons, but they kind of agree. Um, so that was striking enough. What was striking for me, though, was that there was very little analysis of documents, right? There's a lot of substantive analysis. So there's a lot of analysis of particular policies, practices, and say, well, this is liberal, you can tell it's liberal, and there you go. It's kind of like a very basic service in a restaurant sort of thing, you know? I mean, it's, it's actually, I'm doing a disservice. There's very sophisticated analyses on both counts. But they tend to be focusing on, uh, on uh, the substance of the policies, the practices, if you will. Well, of course, discourse is a practice, but um, there is virtually nothing I found surprising. I mean, if anyone of you knows, I'd, be, I'd love to hear about this. But there's virtually nothing looking at the discourse. Right? Now, again, without wanting to be deterministic about, well, people uh, write in certain ways, they, they speak in certain ways, and that's why they behave in certain ways. I mean, of course, the picture is not that simplistic. There's a, there's a, there's a very uh, sophisticated, nuanced relationship between these two, uh, these two, let's say, aspects of, of action. But without uh, wanting to do that, certainly it seems like a legitimate topic to, to look at. Right? And I think the reason why there's relatively little of this so far is that um, uh, maybe we assume we know what's going on. Right? When we say, well, this text is uh, clearly liberal, these policies are clearly liberal, Kind of <laughs> this is falling asleep much earlier than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and yet, what I find is that when you look at these texts, um, it's very there's something very interesting. There are very interesting moves that are going on within these texts, um, and. Uh, of course, these texts on the kind of, I mean, I'm looking at Europe in, 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 uh, in this particular instance, but um, uh, um, uh, these texts don't uh, exist in, in, in a vacuum. There are counterparts, there's a counter-discourse that's produced. Well, there are a series of counter-discourses. The one that I'm interested in, along with Gennaro Gervasio, which some of you know, and uh, we work on this project together, um, <coughs> the counter-discourses I'm interested in are the uh, discourses that come out of the I struggle for a term, but you could call it a pro-democratic opposition in Egypt. Those of you who, who, who come from that, uh, that uh, let's say, general sphere could maybe help me with a, a way of, of calling it, of labeling it. Um, uh, so, um, so, so we're interested in looking at the mismatch right, between the discourse that's coming out of Brussels, London, <coughs> and so on, and the discourse that's coming out of um, of these opposition groups um, in, in Egypt. Um, because it seemed to us initially in our research that there was a very obvious, uh, there was a very obvious uh, gap, there was a very obvious uh, set of, uh, of discordances. Um, uh, well, we started with the assumption, with a general kind of rough idea that, um, that the European uh, Union discourse would be, uh, as we were saying before, liberal in some general sort of sense, and that the, the, the broadly center-left discourse that was coming out of these um, interesting organizations, NGOs and um, other kinds, other forms of opposition groups in Egypt would have a slightly different um, uh, configuration, sort of center-left, center social democratic, socialist, along that kind of um, spectrum. What emerged, particularly on the, on the European side, was that um, 
the, the discourse was actually much more complex and sophisticated. And there's some interesting things that happened within these texts. Now, we were also very lucky because we started these interviews um, in Egypt in December 2008, January 2009, and then I started the European uh, uh, and British set of interviews in February and, and March um, of 2009. So what we ended up with, because we've been continuing um, uh, this, this, kind of, uh, this kind of work, what we've ended up with is, a kind of, uh, is data that allows us to say something about the before and after. Um, so it's, it was a lucky coincidence, um, and and this is the kind of the paper that we're working on, uh, working on together. The stuff that's more technical, focused on the European Union, I'm publishing uh, sort of single-handedly in, in other journals if people are particularly interested or have moments of masochism. I'm happy to to pass this stuff on. Um, now. Uh, what emerges from these discourses is that, that, first of all, they're not monolithic, and that for anyone who comes from a vaguely critical sort of perspective, that shouldn't be a, a particular surprise. Um, but as I was saying, what's interesting about them is the complex shifts that occur in these texts, because, um, because they help us understand uh, not simply that the EU's response, I mean, the EU in this case, but there are also other cases that we could talk about in the European context, that that, that, that response is flawed, but it also helps us understand how and why. Okay? And that is at least as interesting as the fact that it is um, flawed. And I'll give you some examples of those flaws a little bit later on. Um, the important, way of, uh, the, the important uh, conclusion that we draw by contrasting these two sets of discourses is that actually, particularly on the European side, um, these discourses help consolidate uh, a, a, a self-identity for the European Union. Uh, for, at least for the institutions, I'm talking about particularly the kind of the Brussels-based institutions. Um, that, and crucially, they, they help legitimize what, uh, to an outsider, which is what we were and, and still are, I suppose, we were at the beginning of this uh, project, appear to be fairly obvious contradictions. So it helps us understand how those contradictions are reconciled um, and, uh, and how they work out. How much, sorry, Prina, how much time do I have? Um, we have about 10 minutes. 10 minutes. So as those of you who know me know, I'm half Italian, so I talk a lot. <laughs> it's a competition between me as an Italian and you as Egyptian, so... <laughs> anyway. um, uh, and um, uh, what's interesting then also about these discourses is that the, then the particular way, although they work for the European side, what they do is that precisely the reason why they work for the European side, they undermine the credibility of the EU by the side of debates about intention, what the EU really wants to do, when it does democracy promotion in the Middle East, and so on. But simply by configuring their policies, designing their policies within a certain kind of epistemic framework, they produce um, a series of, uh, uh, of rejections, uh, the, uh, a certain series of effects that undermine the, the, the credibility of the EU as a democracy uh, promotion actor within precisely the kinds of constituencies that it's trying to address, because ironically, they, they are trying to talk to you, you know. It's just that you're looking at them, uh, or, well, not you specifically, but, you know, your, your counterparts, um, in the, for example, in the trade union movement, um, are, are looking at these policies in bafflement, thinking, how on earth do you think that this applies to Egypt, you know. And by the way, it's not just the EU. Just last week, there was a, a debate on, um, which, uh, which started on open democracy and has moved over to um, AtlanticCommunity.org. I don't know whether you know this website about NATO reform. And NATO reform, these people are actually seriously suggesting 
the, the way that NATO should react to the Arab Spring is by engaging in capacity building and get this sponsoring civil society. So if you want NATO funding, you know where to go. I was trying to explain to them that this, you know, I mean, come on, it's obvious there's no credibility. Uh, but what's interesting is that these epistemic frameworks allow them to rationalize, to seriously make these points. So I'm interested in how, how they work, how these things work. So we start, I'm going to start out by looking at the, um, the, the, the narratives that come out of these um, uh, organizations that we, uh, that we interviewed. And they're organizations that are the usual suspects of the, uh, of the independent or activist NGO sector. Groups like the New Woman Foundation, which you certainly know, the, the Hisham Barak Law Center, the Center for Trade Union Workers Services, Kamala Bawita's uh, 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 recently established, well, at the time it was recently established, um, uh, Real Estate Tax Collectors Union, and so on. And when we asked them, we talked to them about um, ideas of, of democracy. What, um, we, as I said, we were expecting kind of generally lefty sort of notion. Um, and we got that because one of the things that, that they told us, or we got that, but we got more. Um, one of the things that they systematically uh, would tell us is that, look, you know, you can't think about democracy in a way that's divorced from social and economic conditions, and specifically from social and economic rights. Okay. Um, so, for example, one phrase that several of the people who we interviewed, and I should add, we interviewed um, both the leaderships of these organisations and the kind of the, the um, the people on the ground, although I don't, <laughs> everyone's on some kind of ground, so you know. Um, and they, one, of the, one of the phrases that recurred uh, was, look, you don't understand, like, while privatization of gas, this is a direct quote, sorry, while privatization of gas, water, electricity, etc., are considered services uh, for you in, in the West, in, in Europe specifically, for us they're human rights. So what's and if you think if you think about this in terms of the two perhaps the two most famous areas of uprising, uh, you know the, the the people want the fall of the regime and uh, uh, bread freedom and uh, you know, social justice or even the you know the human dignity of the other version of that um, these are kind of imminent incipient critiques of neoliberalism right so it makes sense to find this kind of affirmation of social and economic issues as rights this is very important. Um, uh, and although actually Gennaro is currently in the process of transcribing a kind of post-revolutionary interview, so I, I don't have data from that at the moment, but uh, as I was saying, the slogans, I mean, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, uh, the, the slogans and the interviews that we've had, that we've conducted so far seem to suggest that this is, uh, that this is an accurate picture. So three observations emerge on this kind of element, on the level of social economic um, uh, issues. First of all, that socioeconomic demands go to the heart of the economic system with which the regime, the brotherhood, and Western governments support. That's the kind of image that was being that we got from uh, from our, our, our sources. Um, uh, secondly, um, it's a pity she's not here, but there was a point that was being made yesterday about the limits of, of uh, political science. Um, the fact that, uh, that that social and economic issues as rights are central to the understanding of democracy of these groups is crucial because it's a critique of what goes on in democratization studies where actually there are plenty of papers in the 1990s where you know, authors from the, the kind of what is now the mainstream say, oh, thank God we managed to uh, thank Adam Smith or something like that. Um, 
the, that we managed to get rid of all of these, pe of all of these pesky people who uh, insist on talking about social and economic rights, now we can only come to concentrate on, uh, on, on elections. And thank goodness for that. Um, and the third thing that they say is that, um, uh, or the, the third implication that I take from this is that um, it's, a, it's a good angle from which to read the debate about the causes of the uprisings, not just in Egypt, but across the region. You have this typical debate that's actually not very interesting that says, uh, well, was it economic causes or was it causes or was it political causes? And that's a badly posed question because obviously those two things are intimately connected. So, um, and this, I mean, this is obvious in this kind of audience, but unfortunately it's not obvious in other kinds of um, uh, academic contexts. What was also interesting, though, for us was that what, the, uh, what our sources were telling us was that civil rights uh, and political rights, this we didn't expect so much, um, were absolutely fundamental. So they were telling us, look, the discourse that you get from, in a sense, echoing the discourse that you get from Western capitals, that you have to have political rights, you have to have free and fair elections, and so on. Although, of course, they emphasized elements like freedom of association, uh, uh, freedom not just of thought, which is one of the kind of uh, uh, things that the European Union emphasizes, but also um, of, of association, of speech, and so on. These kind of very political uh, freedoms that are kind of normally uh, glossed over in, in European Union um, actions. Uh, they also rejected the notion that's very typical of EU discourse uh, of civil society as uh, an agent of change. Now this might be slightly surprising. What I mean by this is that they said, what we can do is we can act as kind of collectors, as kinds of uh, vehicles for the emancipation of people in certain contexts. But if you're talking about long-term structural political change, then that can only come through the formalized political arena. Right? So you have to have, you have, to have those, those political freedoms. You have to have political parties that can be associated and formed uh, freely, and so on and so forth. Uh, things that obviously didn't exist in uh, in 2009, and now exists. Uh, well, they exist much to a greater <coughs> extent than they did um, at the time. So, what we get from uh, from these interviews is a picture of the notion of democracy, which is articulated in a much more sophisticated way than what you would expect the kind of standard lefty um, uh, advocacy groups uh, to uh, to. I don't mean in Egypt. I mean in Italy. It's the same thing. Um, to articulate. Uh, contrast this with the European Union. I've actually only got two minutes left, so I won't bore you that much with the European Union. But what the, what the um, some of you may have uh, heard of this, there's a document, or in fact two documents, that were published, one in March, March 8th last year, and another one in May uh, of last year, on the 25th, I think. Um, the first document is called The Partnership for uh, Democracy and Shared Prosperity. The second one is a new response to a changing neighborhood. And in these documents, the European Union sets out, sets out its claims, its analysis of what the uprisings were about and what it's going to do about them. <coughs> What's uh, interesting about these documents is that if you read the preambles, they look like someone post-colonial has been, you know, <laughs> ghost, a post-colonial ghost in the uh, de la Loire, whatever. Because they're fantastic. It's, ah, democracy, uh, it has to be inclusive, and there have to be partnerships, and we can't. How does 27 of us, how could we possibly dictate to you a single model, one size doesn't fit all, we need to listen to you, there has to be inclusiveness economically, and so on. You think, wow, these people have really learned a lesson. And you, 
you always read the small print, right? And when you read the small print, it's a disaster. Because throughout the document, what happens, and I'll make an example of just one element. Social and economic issues and their relation to the conception of democracy. In the preambles, the texts will say, uh, social and economic issues are rights, and they have to be understood as human rights, as indivisible from all other human rights, including hum uh, civil and political, right? So any approach to democracy promotion needs to foster all of these. But as you move through the text, what happens is that these issues are split into two categories, so <coughs> social and economic rights on the one hand, and civil political on the other. Then there's another move, they say, well, social and economic rights, well, we can't really fit that into European neighborhood policy or EIDHR, so what we're going to do is we have institutions that work for this, uh, that's development, uh, DG development, DG trade, um, uh, and so what's happening here is something that's fairly subtle, but, but absolutely fundamental. Because issues of uh, uh, social and economic issues are being redefined from rights that are integral to the conception of democracy to issues of aid or even uh, of trade or even aid. And the moral economy of those things is completely different. Because if they're rights, then you're entitled to them and you can demand them from me. But if it's aid, then I'm doing you a favor. Okay. So the, 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 the ethics of, uh, of the conversation are completely, uh, completely different. So here you have a, a, a brief, I know I've run out of time, but um, uh, so here what we have is a, a map, and uh, this was the exercise that was the intended for the paper, a map of why it is these two groups of people don't talk to each other, right? And can't talk to each other, right? Um, uh, and this is, this is why, one of the reasons why the European Union's response to the Arab Springs in terms of its democracy promotion is, uh, is uh, that's, I'm not going to say it's inherently flawed, but it certainly doesn't get off to a good start. Right? Now, the final thing I'm going to say about this is a much more kind of theoretical and much more, uh, in a sense, a critical and, and speculative point. What's interesting to me about these uh, analyses is that they help us understand the way in which certain subject positions are defined. Right? So you have subject positions or subject position of the democracy assistant, in a sense, and the subject position of those in receipt of that assistance. And the, the two discourses define those roles, those subjectivities in completely different ways. My claim, but this is for another paper, in fact for another three papers, um, is that these subject positions are actually structured in a way that undermines the possibility, the very possibility for the would-be democratizing other to actually achieve the set of supposedly emancipatory practices or trajectories that are being prescribed by the uh, democracy promoter, as it were. Um, and if some of you, since the ghost of Foucault has been hovering, um, uh, if some of you uh, recognize Foucault's analysis of confession in there, then of course you'll be right. Thank you for your attention.